This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. As we heard in the headlines, three public sector unions are calling for the delay of the start of public schools. But we found one Windward Oahu school campus that has been forging ahead with the August 4th opening. The school community spent the last two weekends adding two outdoor classrooms to make sure students can sit six feet apart. We talked to Aikahi Elementary School principal Kiyoki Frazier about steps it's taking to get ready to welcome the students back. We're all trying to figure out how to best have school be as safe as possible. And those conversations, I think, you know, within our school and I think similarly within the larger community and in the nation, frankly, are very difficult and there's a lot of concern. So through our shared conversations with teachers and parents, you know, we were talking about what we have to do to be safe and what that might look like. That was a big focus. But through that conversation, there's also something revealed itself and an opportunity for us to say, you know what, while we don't know a lot of things and while... There are some things that we're unsure about, you know, what can we do? And that sort of positive attitude, I think, is what's really inspiring. And that's what led to us, you know, creating an idea to build the outdoor learning spaces and then working together over the last several weeks to make it happen. So we got it done in two weekends. The planning, you know, took maybe, you know, two or three weeks. But from its inception in, in late June to it actually being built was, you know, approximately three weeks. Describe to our listeners what you've done exactly. So we have two storage containers on our campus that are 20 feet wide by 40 feet long, right? So what we did was we used those best backdrops to create murals. So there's two of these that are built already and that are ready to go for the school year. And we wanted to have the murals be inspirational, be uplifting, be bright because of the circumstances that we're all facing. And that was what we wanted to do with that part of it. And then to make it usable for kids, we needed a covered structure. And so we researched options. We had some parents who have experience and who work in, you know, the architectural field. And we planned out and, and looked at what, what we could do safely, what was within, you know, our ability to do. And, you know, we, we looked at a tarp option and, and then we said we needed flooring. So we ended up putting in a field turf. A lot of the donations came from parents and we put up the GoFundMe account and donations just started kind of pouring in over the last several days. And... As far as the labor goes, um, you know, we were fortunate. We had companies, local businesses um, just donate their time and, 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 and their expertise. And, and we just kind of worked together and we said, you know, let's do something good for kids. And um, people came out after work and, and the artists have been painting, you know, throughout the weeks um, on their own time. And it just all kind of came together and r- rather quickly. So there's been lots of back and forth over the six feet, three feet distancing thing with the desks. What's your situation as far as, you know, making do with your space and, and with your numbers? I don't know how crowded your classrooms are. Yeah, so the, we're six feet apart in the classrooms, and that's something that took a lot of planning and took a lot of change, and we had to add some teacher positions to certain grade levels to bring down class sizes, and we had to make a decision that for kindergarten, first, second grade, all of our students will return for face-to-face instruction. For our upper-grade students, they're going to be on a blended rotation. So in the classroom, it was very tight. Our classroom spaces, you know, we had to open up new classrooms and we had to um, tell some folks who had offices that, sorry, you can't have your office. You can't have, you know, the space that you had before because we had to add extra classes. But the outdoor learning spaces help a lot because that gives us additional classroom spaces. So teachers can take kids out there. They can use the, you can, they can use the space for classes. They can, they can do everything in there. You can read books. You can do writing assignments. You can do art. Um, you can do some PE lessons. And it's, it's, each space is big, so you can keep them six feet apart. So that really helped us a lot, gave us a lot more flexibility and gave us the opportunity to, you know, try to get our kids outside, which the research has shown overwhelmingly is, is a much safer situation for kids. So you've created two additional spaces. Yes, we added basically two classrooms to our facility, our campus facilities, and those spaces are outside and they're, and they're covered, but, you know, they're not enclosed, which means there's a lot of breeze and it's very cool out there. Um, we were when we were building this past weekend at about 12 o'clock, which is like the height of the the school day when it gets hot. We were super cool out there, and it and it felt good to be outdoors. And the wind was blowing, and 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 the shade was there was tons of shade. So, um, you know, and you can still see because you know there's it's not a completely enclosed place. So it's a very nice space that's going to allow us to have a lot more flexibility and to be able to use you know outdoors learning opportunities in ways that we've never had before. So your school community is embracing the, this idea that, you know, the start of the school year, you're going to be ready uh, no matter what it takes. Our theme this year is Aikahi Hikino, which means can do. So what we're 
about at our school is not just asking tough questions and, and making sure we do things the right way, but we're also about thinking about outside the box. And so I think what came through all, all the all the negative, all the pent-up you know, negative and concern that, that everybody had, um, we had to get that out. We had to talk about that, and people got stuff off their chest, and we were making plans to be safe. And at the same time, this opportunity presented itself where this idea kind of came then we ran with it. Is there any other campus that's doing something similar that you're aware of? Kanal Elementary, our sister school right down the street, a lot of the schools in the Kailua Kailo and Kaleo complex, you know, they're, they're, they're leaving no stone unturned. You know, the education has turned into a, you know, a very national political situation, and on a very intimate level, it's for every single family to make the best decision for, their, for themselves and for their children. And for every single school, you know, we have to see what can we do to help our kids be successful. So... A lot of schools in our area, I know, and throughout the DOE, you know, are, are trying to partner with people to do things and trying to work with their school communities to build benches, to put up tents, to do whatever we can to make not only school be safe, that's this kind of the first thing that's in front of us that we see. We, we need school to be safer, but we also need to get to the point where once the dust can settle as far as our safe practices, we've got to get our kids and our, and our parents and our teachers to just be able to relax and to get into our new groove and to never lose sight of, you know, we're here to help kids and we have to be compassionate and we can't let all the adult noise that sometimes, you know, comes into play, our ability to care for these kids. Well, this week, you know, we heard from uh, the school superintendent about the plan and we heard Catherine Payne, you know, the chair of the school board. The teachers union, on the other hand, is asking that the start of school be put off uh, because it doesn't believe the campuses are ready to safely welcome back the students and the and the teachers. But it sounds like your school's certainly going to try. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if the decision is made and, and schools push back, that's great. That Would that be something that would be good in some ways? Yes, it would be. If that's not the case, you know, if our kids are going to be here in, in two weeks, and then we're going to be ready to do everything we can to have them have a safe school experience and to do so in a way that's compassionate and nurturing because our teachers love kids and they want to help them, and they're here to help them grow in any way they can, so we have to make sure we do it as safely as we can for not only the kids, but also for the adults that come to school every day, and and, and I believe we're on track to doing it. We're working 24-7 to make it happen. I've never seen uh, the collective force, if you will, from our faculty and staff and other schools that are concerned, that are trying to advocate in appropriate channels, at the same time are, are doing what they can to modify their lessons and their campuses to help our kids come back, because you know, when that kindergartner walks in on the first day of school, this is, they're, they're not aware of all the other things that are going out in the world that adults are aware of. They just want to have a good experience and they want to learn. They're curious. So, you know, we have to do all the things we can as the first things first to make sure that we're safe and to also be realistic that something inevitably may happen in our school, in any school. Success is going to be a process. We have to do everything we can to be safe. And we have to respond accordingly and we have to also, you know, if kids are going to come in two weeks, we will be ready. You know, we were hearing from a Molokai school principal that the consensus is, you know, we all have to give in some areas because it's going to be an adjustment. It's not going to be easy, but everybody sure is going to try. Yes, absolutely. So that's why our model, Akahihikino, is just that. Um, you know, sometimes you got to say it to yourself a few times, but we can do this. And I've never seen, I've, I've never had more admiration and respect for, for teachers and for staff members because they are going above and beyond to do anything they can to, to help support their kids to be safe and, and to support themselves, whether it be our custodian say, hey, you know what, I'll, I'll come in an hour earlier and I'll, and I'll do whatever I can in the morning. I don't even care if I get paid for it. Teachers come in and meeting, you know, throughout the night and, and sending ideas and suggestions and the parents reaching out saying, hey, how can we help you? you know, do you need us to go down and buy you know, thermometers. I think the story sometimes that gets portrayed is is that this is a very challenging situation, and, and it very much is. But I think if you see through that, if you really look at what people are doing to come together, I think that's that's probably something I've never experienced before, and it's something that I'm super proud to be a part of at our school. And in the back of my mind, yes, there's worry, there's concern. Sometimes you toss and turn, thinking, you know, can you pull this off? But when you see parents saying, you know, we'll do whatever we can to help, or when you see teachers, you know, staying up and, and emailing you at two o'clock at in the morning to say, hey, what about this idea? It just gives me great confidence that, you know, through all this tough situations, something amazing is going to happen. And, and, and I'm excited about that. And I'm also, um, you know, not naive to the fact that this is going to be a very different and, and not always easy year. Our, our school community is amazing. And every colleague of mine in the DOE that works in a public school that, 
you know, we're, we're working together on trying to figure this out. You know, we, we all have our own school communities, and we're all amazing in our own ways. You know, some people have different resources, but, you know, you might have someone that says, hey, I can help with the donation, or you might have someone that says, you know, I can come in and just greet kids in the morning and say, welcome, I'm happy you come to school, you know. But the, the will of, I think, the public education system is really something that I'm, I'm just, you know, very impressed with, despite whatever challenges we're, we're facing. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. Well, that was Aikahi Elementary School Principal Kiyoki Frazier talking about two outdoor classroom spaces built over the last two weekends to get ready for classes to resume on August 4th. Now it's time for the latest in global COVID-19 news from the BBC. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Thursday, the 23rd of July. I'm Joe Lynham. The pandemic triggers a recession in two of the world's major economies. The head of the WHO rejects as false claims made about him by the US and the number of deaths in South Africa could be far higher than previously thought. Two members of the G20, South Korea and Australia, have reported bad economic news as a result of the pandemic. It had been hoped that they would be able to cope better with the financial fallout after lockdown. But now South Korea, Asia's fourth largest economy, has followed Japan and Singapore by falling into recession. Andrew Walker reports. South Korea's economy has shrunk by a total of about 4.5% this year. That's a sharp downturn, although the pandemic is hitting some other economies much harder. The country was hit early by the health crisis and is seen as having been relatively successful in containing it. Consumer spending actually rebounded in the second quarter of the year, but that was offset by a much larger fall in exports as overseas markets were hit by the virus. South Korea is highly exposed to such international developments. Before the pandemic, it exported 40% of what it produced. Australia has reported its first recession in nearly 30 years. During the second quarter, the economy is set to shrink at its fastest pace ever. The government has pumped tens of billions of dollars to prop up the ailing economy. Despite that, Australia is facing its biggest budget deficit since the Second World War as the country deals with a fresh spike in coronavirus cases. The Australian Treasurer, Josh Fredenberg, said that unemployment is forecast to pass 9% by the end of the year. These harsh numbers reflect the harsh reality we face. Australia is experiencing a health and economic crisis like nothing we have seen in the last 100 years. Our economy has taken a big hit and there are many challenges we confront. The number of Americans claiming unemployment benefit has risen for the first time since the end of March. Jobless claims have jumped by 100,000 over the past week to just over 1.4 million. The figure has been falling each week since it peaked at 6.8 million four months ago when the coronavirus lockdown led to huge job losses. Brazil, which has the second highest number of COVID-19 cases in the world, has registered a record number of new infections more than 67,000 in the last 24-hour period. The health ministry also said that almost 1,300 deaths have been reported in this time. Katie Watson reports from Sao Paulo. It was just over a month ago that Brazil registered a record 55,000 cases, but this is another massive jump, which just goes to show that the crisis is far from easing. The virus is now hitting Brazil's vast interior, smaller towns and remote areas which have fewer medical facilities and those needing hospital treatment have to travel much further. President Jair Bolsonaro, though, who has once again tested positive for the virus after contracting it two weeks ago, continues to push for the economy to reopen and for life to return to normal. The head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, has said the US shouldn't be playing politics during a global crisis, following its claim that he had been bought by China. It's been reported that the U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo privately told British MPs that the WHO's response to the coronavirus outbreak was hampered because Dr. Gebreyesus made a deal with Beijing to secure his job. Mr. Pompeo also alleged that this had led to dead Britons. Dr. Gebreyesus rejected this. The comments are untrue and unacceptable and without any foundation for that matter. COVID politics should be quarantined. Politics and partisanship have made things worse. In South Africa, the worst affected country in Africa, researchers say the number of deaths from the coronavirus may be far higher than the official figure, which is almost 6,000. They believe a further 11,000 unexplained deaths are likely to have been COVID-related. 
There are concerns that many South Africans are avoiding hospitals because they fear they will catch the virus or they believe there aren't enough beds. Gladwin Madlala, who runs a funeral business in Soweto, said that he's dealing with more burials. Normally this time in June we are having plus minus 16, 18 bodies in the fridge, up to 20. But currently we are sitting with more than 30. You know. At some point about a week ago we were sitting at our full capacity, which is 44 bodies in the fridge. So it has, it has really grown. In fact, it has doubled, to be honest. State media in China says that one of the coronavirus vaccines that Chinese scientists are working on could be ready for public use by the end of the year, earlier than expected. China National Pharmaceutical Group has said that it expects to finish late-stage human testing within three months. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders to navigate in times of change. More information at Inkinen.com. They say classical music has the power to heal, to boost creativity, or make you more productive. Some even think it makes you smarter. One thing's for certain, classical music makes you feel good and it's waiting for you on HPR2, your home for classical music. Catch performances right here in the islands and from around the world. Tune in on your radio, our mobile app, or on your smart speaker. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Nico's Kailua, located near Aikahi Shopping Center, with its lunch menu available for curbside pickup and takeout from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Tuesday through Sunday. Menu at nikoskailua.com. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. Iolani Barrack sits on the Mauka Evalon of Iolani Palace. Also known as Halekoa, the structure was originally built in 1870 to house the Royal Guard. The man who designed it was German architect Theodore Hook. He's also credited for designing the Royal Mausoleum in Nuuanu Valley. The barracks was made of coral blocks and was intended to look like a medieval castle. Besides housing the royal palace, the royal tomb guards, it also contained a kitchen, a mess hall, dispensary, living quarters, and prison lockup. Following the 1893 overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy, the royal guard was disbanded and Halekoa was repurposed for several other functions. Once, it was a temporary shelter for refugees of the 1899 Chinatown fire. At another time, it was a government office building, and later it became the headquarters for the Hawaii National Guard. But did you know that the Iolani Barracks was originally built somewhere else? For today's quiz, we want to know where. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app at locationshawaii.com.
In a move to address ocean pollution turning up on Hawaii's beaches, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's regional administrator, John Buster Rudd, ordered the state health department to take corrective action to address ocean pollution at two sites, Camilo Beach on the Big Island and Turn Island in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands have long had their shores inundated with ocean plastics. Critics of the Department of Health say uh, state officials have been ignoring the problem. But Deputy Environmental Health Director Keith Kawaoka says that the recent EPA ruling uh, was really a collaborative process and that the department remains committed to addressing pollution on Hawaii shores. Kawaoka recently spoke with the Conversation's Harrison Patino about efforts to clean up the beaches. The proposed action by EPA for those two sites, and they had recommended several more, I think 19 total. I think we discussed the matter and we agreed to have the two areas uh, potentially listed. And now EPA has to go through a common period, nationwide common period, which goes through mid-August, and to determine what, if these two sites are the, the areas that have been designated as impaired, what will be done at that point. And EPA has said that they're willing to uh, work with us to come up with a, a suitable strategy to go forward with these areas. Now, federal guidelines here to take action under the Clean Water Act. What would that corrective action look like? Well, I think it's kind of when at least the imported waters areas includes a new area that has to be kind of specified more clearly in terms of the, the plastics um, waste uh, determination. Those two areas are sort of sinkholes, if you will, of, of based on the currents, uh, attracting a lot of the, the plastic materials that are basically in the Pacific. If you've heard of the Pacific Garbage Patch, those are areas that, uh, because of their geographic location, seems to attract a lot of the plastics. There's been some criticism against the DOH for not listing these beaches sooner. Camilo Beach is even known by the nickname Plastic Beach. Do you feel the need to bridge the gap between the community criticism and the priorities of the Department of Environmental Health? Well, I, I think going forward, we don't necessarily disagree with that designation, but we want to make sure that we work with EPA, get their guidance, and develop appropriate strategy to deal with the issue. Um, it's one thing to identify a problem, but what strategies and alternatives do we look at to identify what needs to be done to remedy the problem? And that's where we're kind of at right now, and that's where we hopefully will be talking with EPA. They've indicated they will, they want to do that with us. So it's not a confrontational kind of situation, but how do we uh, solve a growing problem, not just in Hawaii, but other areas in the country as well. Now, this decision was notable because EPA Regional Administrator John Busterud unilaterally decided to list the two beaches. Is there a precedent for this kind of unilateral action? Well, it's not necessarily a, a unilateral action. I mean, usually when EPA uh, does these kind of actions, they do confer with us. We do have the primacy uh, authority with the Clean Water Act with appropriate coordination and cooperation with EPA. So it's nothing new. I mean, they, they discussed this earlier with us. Like I said they had, they had listed several other locations uh, as well, and we provided information um, that EPA agreed with the other sites. But those two sites have been identified, and let's see what the comment period comes up with as far as strategies and going forward from, from there. Ocean pollution remains a huge issue on the community's mind. How do you assure critics of the department's dedication to tackling it? Uh, we're certainly not taking it uh, lightly. I mean, we, we do agree that there, there is a, a potential you know, pollution problem. It's, it's developing appropriate strategies uh, with the path forward to identify how big a magnitude is the problem, identifying appropriate uh, remedial strategies to, to deal with the problem. And it's not something that uh, we do on a regular basis as far as the plastics issue. So we recognize there's a problem, but we want to make sure that going forward that we develop uh, technically uh, appropriate and feasible, feasible uh, strategies going forward. How important is it for you to clarify the department's priorities with community criticism? Well, I, I think we're serious about the issue, right? But, you know, we, we do have... Uh, uh, other areas that we're dealing with from a permitting standpoint as well as uh, non-point source problems. So this is an area that, you know, is certainly encompasses those areas. So uh, these are important areas that we consider to be, you know, a problem going forward with that we need to look at seriously and trying to identify suitable alternatives and strategies to hopefully mitigate the problem. I suppose by virtue of the abundance of coastline here in the state, Hawaii is sort of saddled with a particularly difficult challenge of keeping its beaches clean. Do you agree with that? 
Uh, we do. And, you know, we're not the only state, of course, you know, with the West Coast and East Coast uh, situations. They all have their own, in fact, magnitude-wise, larger problems. But uh, we we have a unique uh, situation in Hawaii where uh, it's a very important resource for us. It's the basis for a lot of our industries, like tourism, uh, the visitor industry. So uh, we don't want to have these issues uh, get worse, but we want to make sure that whatever strategies and options we do go forward with are as appropriate technically as well as you know satisfying the EPA's uh, requirements as well. You mentioned earlier that it's important not just to present the issue, but the solution along with it. Any final thoughts on the future efforts to clean up these pages? Well, like I said, let's see what the comments come in from a national perspective, and specifically for Hawaii. Uh, we will certainly look at those comments and uh, determine whether there are comments that we can use to develop strategies, as well as working with EPA. Uh, it's not a confrontational issue in my mind. It's, it's working together to solve a, potentially a, a large, widespread problem that's going to grow. That was Environmental Health Deputy Director Keith Kawaoka talking with the Conversations Harrison Patino about efforts to clean up ocean plastic pollution at Camilo Beach and Turn Island. Time now for our reality check. Our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat highlight a story on the Honolulu prosecutor's race. Reporter Christina Jedro joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this is a really interesting race. It is, yeah. There's several candidates running that have really vastly different visions for what the prosecuting attorney's office should be doing going forward. Um, and this is an office that's really been uh, led by only three men since 1981. So this is a big opportunity for someone to, to shake things up. And you've got two women running. Yeah. So they would be the, the first women prosecutors um, if elected. Um, so just to kind of go through the leading candidates, we have Jackie Esser. She's a public defender. She's kind of the po- uh, progressive crusader in the race. She has a lot of big ideas that are backed by um big endorsements on the mainland, Bernie Sanders um, and progressive prosecutors in, in big mainland cities. She wants to end cash bail, reduce incarceration, um, stop prosecuting drug possession, really steer people um, towards social services instead of prison. She also wants to lobby the legislature for progressive criminal justice reform. Her whole thing is, you know, I want to use the discretion of the prosecuting attorney's office to steer people out of the criminal justice system. And then we have Megan Cow, who's really the opposite approach. Her uh, view is that the law is the law, and she's bound to uphold it. Um, she has said she will, quote, charge all crimes and be objective um, in, in the cases that she prosecutes. Um, she feels that her job is really not to advocate, but just to, to prosecute. Um, Currently, she's a a criminal defense attorney, and she's uh, known for being a go-to attorney for police officers when they get in trouble. Um, uh, We also have uh, former judge Steve Alm, who's kind of pegging himself as the happy medium between those two other candidates. Uh, He's endorsed by the the police union. Um, His uh, big thing that he's known for is hope probation. So that offers uh, short, predictable stints in jail for um, offenders to, as a disincentive, really, when they violate probation. Um, it gives them multiple chances. Um, and then Dwight Notnamoto is our acting prosecuting attorney. Um, he's campaigning on a tough on crime and, and law and order message. Yeah, and uh, then the final candidate, Notnamoto, uh, mm-hmm. I guess he, he, I guess, would reflect more of the status quo, some some people might think. Right. Well, he's been in the office for uh, over a year now as our elected prosecutor, Keith Kaneshiro, has been on paid leave um, after he got a target letter from the FBI. So um, Natamoto has been subpoenaed to um, help investigators in that case, but he has maintained that he's done nothing wrong and that he's been cooperating um, but, uh, yes, he's been in charge of the office, and if 
elected to keep his position. He said he would um, advocate for harsher penalties for offenders. He wants a, a new, bigger prison, um, so there, there's more room in, in incarceration. And um, he also advocates for treatment behind bars. And he's also been cracking down lately on massage parlors and prostitution rings. That's right. Yeah, he's big on um, pursuing sex trafficking cases, um, also domestic violence. He's hired a few more attorneys to, to take on those cases. Um, and he advocated for legislation that would have made it easier to prosecute domestic violence cases, but it did not pass. Uh, Megan Cow said that legislation would have been unconstitutional. People disagree. So, uh, you know, what do uh, political analysts say just about these these candidates and what they represent? Well, um, again, we have these four distinct choices leading in this race. Um, the favorite seems to be Steve Alm. He was leading in a civil beat um, in Hawaii News Now poll in May, but a lot could have changed since then. Um, Alm has also been leading in fundraising, followed by Megan Cow and Jackie Esser. Um, and he does have the most name recognition, um, but, you know, it is possible that people want something newer and, you know, even more of an outsider. So we'll have to see. People are already starting to vote. Yes, I've already got my ballot in the mail. I got it yesterday. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, so the, actually, the city elections office just tweeted out uh, this morning that over 30,000 people have already sent in their ballots. Wow, that's amazing. Well, thanks so much, Christina. Happy to be with you. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read her full story and many other stories that she wrote, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, following health guidelines, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants and bars in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. RubyTuesdayHawaii.com. Gail Shepard had a book deal, a publication date, and a nearly complete manuscript. Then she pulled the plug on her own novel. I just started to feel more and more like um, I wasn't comfortable writing an Asian-American character. It's not my background. Storytelling and culture wars. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. This evening at 7, following says you. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. With an extension of 30 Americans, works by 30 contemporary artists connected through their African-American cultural history. HonoluluMuseum.org. Following our recent call-in show about quarantine breakers, we circle back uh, with the grassroots group Hawaii Quarantine Kapu Breakers. You know, when it first started, it relied heavily on social media posts to track scofflaws who were not abiding by the 14-day quarantine. Angela Keene is one of the group's co-founders. She tells us now that a lot of the tips come in organically, but as the number of people in quarantine grows, the more difficult it becomes to enforce. The numbers have gone up four to five times since we started back in March, April, and May. And you were involved in the recent arrests of a California couple. Correct. We were tracking them for five days. They were staying at an Airbnb or vacation rental in Waimanalo. They had booked a long-term lease with the, the homeowner. He lived on property, which is unusual here. And he warned them about breaking quarantine, and they got into an argument. And so they picked up all their belongings, said that they were breaking the lease, and they went across the street to another vacation rental directly across the street. Um, this was 100% organic, so there was no social media involved. It was a great community effort. We initially got calls from different people who lived nearby, and the neighbors started talking, and all I did was ask them to document from their home, not to approach them, not to confront them, because we don't condone that, And number one, and number two, they'll run, so we don't want to confront them. But it was a great community effort. I submitted that all to the Attorney General's office, to their lead investigator. And they actually staked them out for a couple of days and watched them, and then they busted them. They do have more investigators available to now stake out areas. So if they hear rumors or they hear things or they get a report from us, they'll, they'll go in and watch. So talk about these loopholes that people are, are getting around. You know, like you said, they break the lease, they go next door. There's so many. So that is one. They also check into a hotel for 24 hours and then will check out because the airport will call the hotel 
and confirm that they're there. Yes, they're there. They check in, and then the next day they check out and may not even see anybody at the front desk, but just check on out, and then they book a flight for the neighbor islands. And um, when they go to the neighbor islands, they're not necessarily checking to see how long they've been here or what quarantine they've been on because neighbor island travel is open to all of us. And if they say that they're local, oh, I just have a California ID. I've been here a long time. You know, they've, they've gotten through like that. That There were a couple that got through on Kauai doing that. There's also people who rent Turo vehicles or home-owned rental vehicles. So that would be similar to what you would do with a Airbnb or VRBO. It's a vehicle and it's owned by a person and you just contact them on the app and you rent the vehicle and it's really cheap and there's no identifying marks on the vehicle. It looks like a local vehicle, not a traditional rental vehicle. And that is illegal. It's in the governor's latest proclamation. However, the app just keeps going. There's no warning on there. There's people on Oahu that have 30 vehicles that they own and they rent them out. You're kidding. No, no. That's amazing. I know that, you know, you drive by the Aloha Stadium and the cars are still parked in the lot there. I don't know how it is on on the other neighbor islands, but I have seen some smaller lots here and there, Waikiki. um, But but yeah, the app is certainly uh, then another way for folks to try and circumvent this. Yeah, there's a lot. The other thing is social media. It's easy to do social media. That, That was what we did in the beginning. But then we got a lot of trolls, anti-quarantine people who would actually post fake that they were in Hawaii. And once I did investigating, you know, I could see, oh, the guy's up at Diamond Head. Diamond Head is closed. So that can't be real. You know, all you have to do, you know, we're both reporters in a former life. And so we know how to look at details and investigate. And so those kinds of details are very important. And social media can't always hold up in court. So we decided to do more grassroots, and that helps our group cooperate and work together and work with neighbors and see us as a, as a positive organization in the community to help the neighbors out. As far as the issue of exemptions? Here's what I can tell you. One of our members is Mel Raposo. He's an investigator on Kauai. And when I told him I was coming across exemptions, many of them, and many of them didn't seem to be authentic, he said to me, they're handing them out like candy. So it's, it's a plea that a person makes to say, you know, they can write in and they can give their story. I have cancer or I'm a doctor or I have a medical condition. This is my last trip. Those kinds of things are looked at carefully. They're given review, they're approved by law enforcement or by the attorney general's office, and then it may not be so. You know, they're taking them on their word. Then the person gets here, there's several lines at the airport, and there's an exemption line. And so those people go through with their piece of paper, but the employees at the airport want to get those people out of the airport quickly because it's a closed-in area and a risk for um, spreading germs. So they, they move through quickly. Yeah, you got an exemption off on your happy way. And then they take advantage of it when it's not really a true exemption. You know, they might be a doctor, but they're here on vacation. They might be a pilot or a flight attendant, but they're here on vacation. They're not working. And so there's no follow-up to that. This is something that we're working on with the attorney general's office and with the folks that are running the program, and they know about it, and things will be changing. It won't happen overnight, but it is definitely a workaround that people are using right now. Okay, so they just need to come up with a system so that we can better verify that the reasons they're saying they should be exempt are really true. Correct, and we're talking with the powers that be to say, hey, let's make this all electronic. Let's make sure that if these people really want to come here, that they're planning their trip, you know, a week ahead or a couple days ahead, and that they're required to submit all that electronic information and that they can review it and that they're approved to go before they fly, before they even get on the plane. If that can happen, that would be a win-win situation. It'll cut down on fake exemptions and, and things like that. And you know, we had a situation with a tour company that contacted us, and they were really concerned because they're only now doing Kama'aina. And the person checked the, the tourist information, and she said she had an exemption. 
And she was bragging to all of the other people at the venue that, oh, we got an exemption, we got an exemption. And everybody was upset. So, one, they shouldn't be doing that <laughs> and announcing it, right? But the vendor that's doing the tour operation can actually ask them, where is your exemption paper? And this person did not have their paper in hand. So we had to contact the attorney general's office and get an investigator, and they checked. And the person that was with the exemption did not have any exemption. The exemption was real, but they didn't have their paperwork. So, you know, that's something that local businesses need to be aware of. If they feel that somebody is a tourist and they're sick and they're coming in and they're not wearing a, a mask and they feel worried about their health and safety for coronavirus, they can say, um, "Where have you quarantined? Or, you know, can I see your exemption? Or you know anybody can turn anybody away if they so choose so that was the advice that i was given until things get fixed so for oahu it is a state offense so attorney general sheriffs are involved and hpd can assist if they need to extra help on the neighbor islands there's no attorney general offices or representatives or investigators or sheriffs so the county police department have taken on that role and they're already overwhelmed so what will happen is a resident on the Big Island, and this is a this is a real case, a resident in Pahoa says, my neighbor came back from Florida and she's breaking quarantine, okay? Real thing. Calls were made to Hilo police all over to various law enforcement there, civil defense, the police in Kona because she was going to Kona as well. She was all over the island. And I was getting calls saying, Angela, this is what you told us to do, but we can't get anybody to take any action. Then the police went out daily for a couple of days and tried to follow her, but came at the wrong times and didn't necessarily, how do I say, communicate well with the person that was sending in the complaint. And so it was just a big circus going around and round and round and round. And then we had to make a few more calls. And then finally, after five days, she was arrested in Pahoa Town. That took an incredible amount of effort when they could be going after criminals and have this one already done and in the can. So that's something that we also plan to work on. And uh, the powers that be know about some, some of that, but I'm trying to reach some of them to um, to be able to communicate, to say, hey, the system is broken in some places, we need to work on this. And that's really what we do with lawmakers, with authorities, with attorney general. And in general, they listen. It just takes a while to get these policies enforced and get things changed. It's a work in progress. Now, you were involved in the Carbon Cult, the group that was there on the Big Island who intended to stay but then changed their mind. That was probably the biggest operation we had on record. They actually have a group of people who are a haters group. Think of it as a fan haters group. They're people who have had family members that have been involved with the cult, and so they don't like them. They're enemies. You know, they're an anti-fan group. They informed us a week prior that that the cult would be here. And so we started communicating with Big Island. Um, I got involved with some of the other community groups on the Big Island, such as Big Island Thieves. We all kind of banded together and said, how can we, you know, keep an eye out and just make sure that they're going to be Pono, that they're going to be okay. And once they landed, the first thing, you know, he was all over social media. They were out and about. They were in the water. They were touching protected Honu. They were breaking rules. They were breaking cultural rules, and people were up, very upset. The first few calls went unanswered. I think authorities weren't so sure that they had anything on them or that they, you know, if they're not dangerous or they're not breaking the law, there's nothing they can do. But once we were able to gather information in the community, getting sightings in the community, getting them at the gas station, you know, getting them at the beach or outside or out and about, that was enough. And um, although I wasn't supposed to do this, I did give a heads up to the investigator at the attorney general's office. They made it clear that that's not their territory. They can't really assist, but that they might put in a call to Chief Ferreira at the, at the Hilo Police Department. And once, once those connections all kind of came together and we were able to share the evidence, 
they were on it. Mm -hmm. And um, shortly after then, they were arrested. It took a lot of community effort, and it was very difficult. What do you say to folks who who may be just a little concerned about being the the posse or uh, vigilante group? We don't go after people. That just loses the case. I mean, that just makes them go dark. And I don't want the term vigilante on my name because that's not who I am. So what I tell people is don't approach them, they'll run, okay? Don't get near them, don't confront them, they'll run. Just if you happen to be nearby and you have a place where you can take some photos and document it, document it and send it to us and we'll send it to investigators and let them figure it out. That was Angela Keene, administrator of the Hawaii Quarantine Kapu Breakers Group, working to provide tips to law enforcement to help catch violators. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, now offering distance EMBA in travel industry management starting this fall. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Tune in to HPR1 Saturday night for the next Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live. This week it's Jeff Peterson performing traditional and original music on slack key guitar. He'll play some brand new music, plus slack key jazz, and music from his travels around the world. And we'll hear an interview with Jeff as well. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on the HPR mobile app. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about the original location of the Iolani Barracks that currently sits on the Evalon of Iolani Palace. Now, the building's architecture harkens back to medieval castles of Europe. It was constructed with over 4,000 coral blocks from the same limestone source used to build Kauaihau Church and the Cathedral of Our Lady of Peace in downtown Honolulu. The Iolani Barracks has had many lives since those days. Now it houses the palace gift shop, ticket office, video theater, and membership office. In 1870, the barracks was situated at the current site of the state capitol building on South Baratania Street. Now, when plans were originally made to construct the capitol, the barracks was dismantled block by block and reconstructed in 1965 at its present location on the grounds of Iolani Palace. And our winner today, Todd from Bicky Bikes, uh, you got it right. He shared with us that he actually has a painting of the barracks at the old location. That's today's quiz. Uh, please, if you have an idea for one, send it to hawaiipublicradio.org. Hawaii Public Radio's summer intern and Syracuse University student Amy Nakamura found herself sheltered for two weeks earlier this summer due to the state's mandatory 14-day quarantine. Today, she shared her experience and reflected on returning home to Hawaii and having to abide by the quarantine process. There were a lot of plans I had made for the summer. I thought I would be spending time interning in New York at the Wall Street Journal. I was going to see the Statue of Liberty and catch a show on Broadway. But then COVID-19 happened, so I decided to head back home to Hawaii. Luckily for me, HBR said it could use some summer help. It is 4.18 in the islands, and all things considered, good afternoon, I'm Dave Lawrence. Since I was coming from the state with the highest number of COVID-19 cases in the country, my parents and I decided to take extra precautions. I quarantined alone in my aunt's house. She had moved out years ago and the house had been empty. It was, well, a little lonely. My mom stocked the fridge and cabinets with food that I need for the 14 days. My other aunt lives next door, so she would drop off supplies on my front steps as well. And there was always pizza or takeout. Hi, I'd like to place an order for a medium pepperoni pizza. I missed my family after being away at school. Saddest of all, I was looking forward to my brother's high school graduation. 
Iolani School was allowing close family members to watch the ceremony in person from their cars. On behalf of Chair Dr. Mark Mugaishi and the members of the Board of Governors, as well as my distinguished colleagues of the administration, faculty, and staff, well... But I was stuck in quarantine. And when graduation day finally came, I watched my brother receive his diploma from my laptop. Working remotely for HPR took up most of the time, which is good. I always have something to do during the day. Off hours, I had to entertain myself. I've never really lived by myself before. There's always been family or college roommates around, but thanks to Netflix, the two weeks in quarantine went by faster than I thought it would. FaceTiming friends from college and those here also helped me pass the time. Hi. Hey, man. On the last day of my quarantine, I went to the Department of Health website to check on my status. It said, thank you for protecting your health and our community. Your mandatory self-quarantine is completed. Enjoy the rest of your stay in Hawaii. I was finally free. I walked around the block, saw my friends, and it felt like a big, big relief. Except there's still COVID-19 out there. I'm constantly paranoid, making sure my friends, family, and I are all abiding by social distancing rules. So, while I survived my 14 days inside, there's no real end to the feeling that I need to be careful. And I think that's going to stay with me, with all of us, for a while. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Amy Nakamura. That was HPR's summer intern, Amy Nakamura, sharing her story about her 14 days in quarantine after returning home to Hawaii. We were happy to have her here this summer, and we wish her well. Okie that does it for today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa takes you into the weekend for an Aloha Friday show devoted to culture and the arts. With the new school year just around the corner, we'd like to know what you think. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. Call our Talkback line. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.